Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Amrin Zaman and I am Almonitor's chief correspondent based in London. As the war between Israel and Hamas enters its 12th day, I will be talking to Rashid Khalidi, a widely acclaimed Palestinian-American historian who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University in New York. Professor Khalidi is better placed than most to explain the complexities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to unpack the competing narratives assigning blame in this recent bout of violence. Professor Khalidi's most recent book is The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. So welcome to our program, Professor Khalidi. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I was uh, just listening to your program with uh, Farid Zakaria, and uh, you were saying to him that for decades you are being told you'll be subjugated, you'll be second-class citizens, you'll be dispossessed, that we will take your land at will, and uh, the United States has basically not just supported but financed and armed that process. And you said, so people in the Arab world when they see no horizon, are willing to turn to Hamas. So my question to you, a Professor, is were you suggesting that people in the Arab world generally support Hamas and what it did on October 7th, and more broadly, uh, that Hamas was left with no other choice than to resort to just this kind of horrific violence to remind Israel and the world that there can be no peace over their heads, over the heads of the Palestinians? If so, uh, what has been achieved, if anything, on behalf of the Palestinian people through this act of desperation, if that's what it is? Actually, I wasn't saying anything of the sort. What I was saying that the systematic closing of any political horizon over the past at least two decades by the United States and by Israel, and by that I mean a political horizon which speaks to the demands and and rights of the Palestinian people involving self-determination, equal rights, end of occupation, end of land theft and colonization. Absolutely no response at any political level to any Palestinian rights by the United States and Israel has left the field open for advocates of violence. If you demonize people who call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions as anti-Semites, if you prevent the Palestinians from going to the International Criminal Court, if the United States vetoes resolutions at the United Nations Security Council, and if the United States does all of this while arming Israel, financing settlement expansion, the money is raised in the United States from tax-free 501s, 501c3, quote-unquote, charities, which pour money into the occupied territories to expand settlements, expand the theft of Palestinian land. If you do all of those things uh, and essentially close off the avenue of peaceful protest, boycott divestment sanctions, legal recourse, and offer absolutely no political horizon, no mediation, no negotiation, no Middle East peace envoy for administration after administration after administration, then you shouldn't be surprised if the result is violence, if 
unceasing violence of occupation and land theft doesn't lead to violence, we should be surprised. In other words, if the kind of humiliation and subjugation imposed on the Palestinians actually for 75 years, but certainly in the case of Gaza for 16 years of blockade and siege, and on the Palestinians generally uh, over many decades, but specifically in the absence of any political horizon whatsoever over the better part of a couple of decades, then one should not be surprised when violence suddenly finds support in the Arab world. I was actually mainly talking in that response in the question you asked me about, uh, about why people in the Arab world are so angry today. Uh, not so much that they necessarily support Hamas. Many of the governments that are taking positions today are fervent opponents of the Muslim Brotherhood, are not supporters in any way, manner, or form of Hamas. That's not the point. The point is not Hamas. The point is, what are Israel and the United States doing on the issue of Palestine? And why is it that Hamas emerges as the only uh, uh, apparent uh, alternative uh, for many, at least for many Palestinians? I think that's the point. And do you think that point is understood by the Biden administration, judging by uh, uh, its actions since uh, October 7th? Absolutely not. The Biden administration is reading off an Israeli teleprompter. The Biden administration has adopted a position of complete alignment with the Israeli point of view. This is a case of absolute evil. I'm quoting the president. This is a case where Hamas is worse than ISIS. Make ISIS look rational, I think is what he said uh, on his arrival in Israel or in his speech there. Um, this is a case where expression of humanitarian sympathy does not allow the United States to vote for a resolution that would open humanitarian corridors. An expression of humanitarian sympathy does not allow the United States to demand of Israel that it allow water and fuel and food and electricity into the Gaza Strip. In other words, empty, meaningless statements about the humanitarian aspect combined with complete support for anti-humanitarian actions by Israel means the United States is aligned 100% on the Israeli position. Uh, so. Uh, I, I, I think that I think that the Biden administration has completely nailed its flag to the mast of whatever it is that Israel decides to do and has done so far. Uh, I think the president's adoption of the Israeli. I don't know what to call it, the Israeli claims about their bombing of this hospital yesterday, the Ahli Ma'amadani hospital in Gaza yesterday is a perfect example of this. It would have been possible to say this is something that really requires investigation at the very least. Um, the fact that he was slapped in the face by three Arab leaders who are normally reliable allies of the United States who refused to meet with him is an indication, not so much of their any conscience on their part, but the fact that they realize that their public opinion is enraged by the American position and they cannot be seen to be meeting with this man or people from his administration. That being the case, um, with the world's number one superpower so firmly aligned with Israel, then what can be done? What 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 can change? How can you sort of shift the dynamic? Or are we just left with more violence? Well, I think that the United States and several Western countries that are aligned with the United States have put themselves in a position where they are, in, a, in an essence, hostages to whatever it is that Israel decides to do by saying Israel has an absolute right of self-defense, which means that 
it can act in disproportionate fashion in violation of international humanitarian law. Whatever meaningless gibberish they put out about humanitarian issues in international law is clearly contradicted by the fact that one of the essential principles of this is proportionality and killing at last I heard 3,300 people, almost most of whom are civilians and perhaps half of whom are children, doesn't seem to me to fit any definition of proportionality. So the United States and its Western European, closest Western European allies, Germany, France, and Britain, all of whose leaders are in or going to Israel, uh, following in the, in, the, in the path of President Biden, um, frankly, I think have put themselves in a position of, of, of isolation within the world community, as is shown by the vote in the Security Council. 12 countries voted for a very mild Brazilian resolution. The only country to vote against was the United States. Even Britain abstained. So uh, I, 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 I don't have, I'm, I have no answer to your question. What is the way out of this? I think the, the United States stopping doing what it's doing and Israel beginning to reflect on how it's going to deal with the Palestine issue would take us out of this. I'm not terribly optimistic about either of those things happening, however. In fact, probably even less likely, given the rage anger felt in Israel over precisely the, of Israeli civilians and the peace, uh, pro, you know, proponents being even more marginalized. But uh, shifting to this argument that the Abraham Accords and normalization with Saudi Arabia, which would have been the jewel in in, in the crown, was one of the main triggers uh, for this uh, recent spate of violence. Uh, though spate, of course, is the wrong word. Uh, do, do, do you agree with that at all? No, no. I, I don't think that Hamas attacked as it did uh, solely or even necessarily mainly to uh, prevent the uh, normalization of relations between Israel and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. That probably was a factor. Uh, I would say undoubtedly it's a factor. Um, but I don't think it was their primary concern. Uh, I, I I don't know what, what precisely was in their heads. I still am not clear on whether they even had a political objective or whether this was something play, uh, planned by the hard men in Hamas um, and 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 had essentially military objectives with with very little uh, uh, sense of where they intended to go with it. But I don't think that's the point. I think it's clear that uh, they were pushing back against a narrative which Israel and the United States and its allies have been have been uh, putting out for quite a while, that the Palestine issue is not important, that one can ignore it, that um, a future of peace and economic prosperity in the Middle East over the bodies of the Palestinians and ignoring their rights and their interests, and in fact, their very existence was not only possible, but desirable and easy, in fact. Um, look at how easy it was to have relations between so-called peace treaties between countries that never were at war with Israel, like Morocco and the Emirates uh, and Israel. Look at how easy that was. Well, Saudi Arabia would be the, the kingpin here. And, you know, the, uh, it was clear that there was an interest on both sides in something happening. At least that's what we hear, heard from Saudi Arabia. I believe things have changed as a result of this. Whether this was Hamas's objective or not is not necessarily discernible, let alone the point. The point is the first and most ferocious denunciation of the bombing of the Ahli Mamadani hospital came from Saudi Arabia. The king kept Blinken waiting for 10 hours before he received him. Not the king, excuse me, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Uh, and the position taken by Saudi Arabia has been extremely, extremely hard. Uh, 
uh, it is very clear the position taken by Egypt has been equally hard. The position taken by Jordan, the position actually taken by every Arab country, uh, even the vote in the Security Council by the United Arab Emirates, a country with diplomatic relations and extremely close security re relations with Israel over more than a decade, uh, was for the Emirates quite forceful. Well, this is a function of the reaction across the Arab world and across all of the civilized world, except the United States and Europe, which live in a an information misinformation bubble uh, at what is happening in Palestine, because Israeli lives should be considered civilian lives should be considered important. Obviously, uh, any 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 civilian death should be mourned, but all people are supposedly equal, and the hundreds of Israeli civilians who are exclusively mourned in the West have now been matched by 3,000 of the, the perhaps 900 or 1,000 Israeli civilians in addition to hundreds of Israeli soldiers. But the 900 or 1,000 Israeli civilians who died uh, uh, starting on, on, the, on the 7th of, of October are now matched by a, a mountain of two or three times. It will soon be four times as many Palestinians, again, in, like the Israelis, innocent civilians. And the rest of the world sees that. They do not see the difference between uh, Hamas or other militants coming out of Gaza killing civilians and Israeli pilots or Israeli uh, gunners or Israeli gunboats killing civilians. Killing civilians is killing civilians, especially in these numbers, the hundreds of Israelis who are killed, civilians, and the now thousands of Palestinians. And the world sees that even as the American and European uh, political position and their the media, which seems to move in lockstep with their governments, uh, may distort this. Well, this is a pervasive problem. I mean, people, the Turks are bombing northeast Syria. You know, people are dying by the thousands in Yemen, Sudan, everywhere. And of course, it doesn't get anywhere near the amount of attention. But one argument that's put forward by uh, some people is that, well... <laughs> You know, because of the Holocaust, the Israeli people, the Jewish people are just so deeply traumatized that this is in their genes, uh, that, that that they, you know, they just can't overcome any of this. And so for, for them, you know, it's so, so much worse, quote unquote, that, you know, the rest of the world needs to understand that where they're coming from. It does, but that doesn't give them a laissez-passer to commit war crimes. It is something that should be understood. I mean, one of, in my view, one of the great strategists of liberation struggles, a man named Iqbal Ahmed, said something like this many, many years ago and told the PLO that their strategy was mistaken because against he, he, had, he had worked with the FLN in Algeria. FLN was responsible for innumerable atrocities against French colons, uh, uh, against French settlers in Algeria. And he had been part of that effort. He wasn't, he wasn't setting bombs himself. He was working with, with France Fanon in, in the information war uh, that the FLN was waging. Uh, and he went to South Lebanon and he came back and said, against this enemy, which is uh, a people suffering from these specific traumas, this strategy won't work. I, I published in my, in my last book, The Hundred Years' War in Palestine, I, I repeated at length uh, Iqbal uh, Ahmed's analysis. And so there's a, there's a lot of good strategic reasons. I'm not just talking about moral reasons. I'm talking about strategic reasons for Palestinians to pay, and, and, and other supporters of Palestinian liberation to pay attention to that fact. The Jewish people are a particularly traumatized people.
And the Holocaust is something that's in the minds, not just of the generation that experienced it, of whom very few are survivors anymore, but of the generations that, that followed. Anybody who has any sense, political sense, not a sensitivity to what their colleagues will say, political sense, should understand that. However, the Israelis and, and the Jewish people are the, not the only traumatized people on the face of the planet. The Armenians are traumatized people for equally good reasons. Uh, the Palestinians, for completely different reasons, are also a traumatized people. And of course, that suffering, for some reason, doesn't get the same kind of attention. And that trauma and what that drives people to doesn't get the same attention or, or analysis or concern that Jewish suffering and Israeli suffering, especially, and Israeli trauma uh, gets. I mean, Holocaust survivors were killed. Civilians were killed in this attack. And that's the kind of thing that's going to reverberate, unfortunately, for generations. So I'm, I'm fully sensitive to, to what you're saying. But uh, again, trauma doesn't excuse. Murderers have been traumatized in their past. Rapists were traumatized in their past. Many of them are victims. I hate to talk about this. It's a horrible subject. But uh, we don't say, well, you're going to get off for this murder conviction because you yourself were traumatized in your youth. Uh, uh, it, it, is, it is something that people should be obviously paying attention to and concerned with. It should not, however, I hate to say this, be the only concern. Well, of course, the media's role is also, you know, can be very pernicious. So zooming out a bit as a historian, and particularly in the face of all this fake news, false narratives that are spread so fast and effectively, um, you must feel an even greater responsibility responsibility than ever to record, interpret, analyze events for posterity. Uh, and so much of the current debate is focused on who did what to who in, and who did it in, in a more brutal fashion. Um, if you were to summarize how we got here, um, is, is this a kind of a ground zero? And I know it's kind of impossible to squeeze this all into a short podcast um i mean can you just run us through the timeline of how yeah. we got here yeah i mean it's a terrible mistake to be assume that the timeline begins on the 7th of october or that hamas uh has to be seen solely and, and uniquely in light of what what happened from the 7th of october onwards i'm not suggesting we ignore that i'm simply suggesting that we look a little further back now, I, I have written at length about how far back we should look. I suggest we should look back at least to the Balfour Declaration, at least to the establishment by Britain of a settler colony at the expense of the Palestinian people intended to replace them in their homeland. Um, and everything that follows from that, the expansion of that project, uh, ultimately to most and now to all of Palestine, and the dispossession of the Palestinian people as a necessary, inevitable consequence of creating a Jewish state in a majority Arab country. You can't create a Jewish state in an Arab country without removing the Arabs, or it's not a Jewish state. I mean, hello. Um, that was a that that was a, that was inherent in Zionism, as one of my ancestors wrote. It's a wonderful idea, but not here. Yusuf Al Khad. Zionism is understandable. The connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is understandable. It's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable. However, you, doing this here has consequences, which Zionism and its apologists have insistently 
have insisted we ignore, we pretend it didn't happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, it's really worthwhile, and I know I'm going to be swimming against the tide to say this, to understand that, as, as I suggested earlier, the closing off of any possibility of a political solution to this struggle between these two peoples necessarily is going to lead to violence. If you don't allow anything else, the repression and oppression and dispossession, which is inherent in this project, and which has been inherent in the occupation of the occupied territories of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and occupied Arab East Jerusalem since 1967, will necessarily lead to violence. You cannot repress an oppressive people without them eventually rising up. And that that resistance will, if you if you prevent it from taking political expression, will become violent. And what has in particular been happening in Gaza and with Hamas is well worth looking at carefully. It's well worth looking at what happened, for example, in 2006, after the uh, elections of that year, when uh, Hamas and its opponents tried to form a coalition government, when Hamas offered 100 years truce to Israel. 100 years, not permanent, but 100 years is better than what we've had for the last uh, 18 years, certainly. Um, and when this was turned down categorically by Israel and the United States, which worked ceaselessly to split Palestinians, to divide the Palestinians, to separate Gaza from the West Bank, to shut off any political alternative that would involve Hamas. Well, the same people, or at least the same country, the United States, which brokered the 1998 Accords in Ireland, which involved negotiations with the Irish Republican Army provisional wing, which had been involved in the most extensive violence, not just in Ireland, but in the United Kingdom, refused to do the same thing with Hamas. One of the people who was involved in an American effort to do this, a, a senior American official, a former senator, a former, uh, a former mediator in Ireland, tried to do the same thing and was turned down flat by people in the US government. Uh, you cannot talk to Hamas. Well, if Hamas was willing to talk, why wouldn't you have talked to them? So when you slam the door in their face, I'm not justifying anything. I'm telling you how we got to where we are. Context is important. If you pretend there's no context, then you can paint any lying picture of the present. You can start from the killings that occurred starting on the 7th of October. History did not start with Hamas or anybody else on the 7th of October. It didn't start with the siege of Gaza, which started in 2007. It didn't even start with the rejection of the results of the Palestinian election and the formation of a Palestinian coalition government, which intended with the participation of Hamas to negotiate. It starts before that. And you have to go back and understand all of those phases to see how we've gotten to this horrific moment where hundreds of Israelis and thousands of Palestinians, civilians, are dead. But when you also look at that timeline, what you see happening is that, you know, facts keep getting created on the ground and the Palestinians are losing more and more and more of it. How do you reverse that? Well, two things. Uh, the first thing is, you're absolutely right about what's happening on the ground. Um, you're absolutely right that um, the dispossession of, of, of populations and the, and I'm afraid, I, I hope I'm wrong, ethnic, further ethnic cleansing of Palestinians uh, is, is occurring as, as we speak. 
Um, three villages in the West Bank were emptied of, small villages in the West Bank were emptied of their population by, by rampaging settler mobs, which chased the people of those tiny localities out of their homes and then destroyed their homes. Uh, so that's ethnic cleansing. That's the Israeli government. Israeli government is the, is the occupying authority. It's responsible under international law for that. The Israeli government is responsible for that. As it is responsible, it's declared its responsibility for trying to empty the northern part of Gaza of its population. Six, seven, eight hundred thousand people have been forced to leave their homes. Um, obviously, what's happening on the ground is extraordinarily unfavorable to the Palestinians in that respect. And I have to say, in addition, that since the 7th of October and since the, the alignment of the United States government and the American media, by and large, with an Israeli narrative, um, enormous progress that had been made in the United States and in the West has been reversed. Uh, progress in terms of Palestinian rights and understanding that the Palestinian narrative has, has to be listened to at the very least. I think we've gone backwards on that. And I don't know when and if that, that, that reversal can be, can, can, can somehow be uh, overcome. Um, I do not think though that Israel or the United States have any sense of how politically meaning, I don't want to say it this way. I, I don't think the United States and Israel understand that, they, that, they, that there is absolutely no political uh, uh, horizon in what they're doing for them, for the United States and the Arab world or for Israel in the Middle East. This is a nihilistic approach uh, which which can bring nothing nothing but harm to all concerned. But but what makes it apparently even more complicated is the fact that um, what Hamas did, you know, and taken out of the context that you just described to us as a historian, um, is conflated with uh, Islamist extremism writ large, where you right. have President Biden uh, comparing Hamas to ISIS. Can right. you, Professor, tell us whether that's a fair comparison or not? I, I mean, let, let me start by saying this is a script that Netanyahu unearthed from his mentor, Ariel Sharon, who first wrote it in the wake of the 2001 attacks. Israel was searching for a strategic, a, a, a reason for it, for it to remain a strategic ally of the United States. And latching on to the war on terrorism and latching on to the war on Islamism and Islamic extremism, and, and specifically Al-Qaeda initially, and later Islamic State, was the means that was used to conflate the, the kind of nihilistic Islamic terrorism that Daesh, Islamic State, and before them Al-Qaeda represented, with the uh, uh, national liberation, Palestinian effort at national liberation, which includes some of the same methods. In other words, methods that involve attacks on civilians. And saying, using the, this 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 blanket term terrorism, uh, Sharon and his and his information people brilliantly managed to uh, uh, hitch Israel to the American cart of the, the war on terror. And Netanyahu is just rereading from that script and the Biden administration, which, as I said, they're reading from an Israeli teleprompter. This is not an American idea. And it has particular resonance in the United States because the United States suffered from the terrorism of Al-Qaeda back in 2001. It has particular resonance in Britain and France, countries which have suffered from that kind of terrorism, from Daesh and Al-Qaeda extremists. Um, the fact that what Hamas is trying to do is not some kind of global struggle to establish some kind of Islamic state, it is not some kind of uh, nihilistic and, 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 and 
uh, aim unrelated to territory, but is an attempt to do something in Palestine about what was done to Palestine uh, through Zionist settler colonialism is completely lost in this. You mentioned going back to you know the reaction from uh, the Arab states, how the Saudi Crown Prince left Blinken waiting, and this very strong uh, reactions uh, in general from all of these countries. Do you see this leading to them maybe downgrading their relations? I mean, where they exist, obviously, for Jordan, for Egypt, for countries like Turkey, to downgrade their existing ties. And could that, over time, be the real challenge for Israel, that they are once again surrounded, as it were, by a sea of hostile Arab and Middle Eastern states? Could that be the price they pay? That's inevitable. I think you put your finger on one of the major results of this. Israel is going to be a pariah again. After a, a process whereby it, 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 it managed to gain a measure of acceptance in spite of what it was doing to the Palestinians. But I would go f further than that. I think that this applies to the United States, given that it is, it is linked at the hip to Israel uh, by President Biden and his rhetoric and his policies and his actions. The United States will lose in the Middle East overall as a result of this, not just in terms of its relations with individual countries like Turkey or like Egypt or like Saudi Arabia, but in terms of the opportunity this, this offers to rivals of the United States like China, uh, like Russia, uh, like I think in, in time countries like India uh, and Brazil and others to play a larger role in world politics, to play a larger role in specifically in the Middle East because the United States has alienated uh, countries to such a great excess. Now, it remains, as you suggested at the top of this podcast, the leading superpower. That doesn't end just because it's alienated countries. But I would argue it's, it's given an enormous leg up to every rival of the United States and to all countries in the Middle East. It has alienated them and pushed them away from the United States and towards other alternatives, which many of them have already developed. I mean, you look at Turkey, you look at Iran, you look at Saudi Arabia, and you look at Egypt, they all have developed excellent relations with the countries that I mentioned, whether China or Russia or Brazil or India. They understand that there are developing other poles in the global, uh, 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 in the global situation, and this will push them further in those directions. Well, if I'm the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and I see what happened, uh, you know, despite Israel's might and, you know, extraordinary intelligence capacity, military capacity, I would be very uncomfortable thinking what might happen at home or if I were any other authoritarian. Right. I mean, the other thing to, to watch is authoritarian governments which rule against the public opinion of, uh, of their of their peoples which rules through repressive means, being forced for the first time in a very long time to take their people's opinions into, into account. Uh, uh, Jordan and, and, and Saudi Arabia and Egypt refusing to meet with an American president doesn't happen every day. It's happening because they're suddenly watching what's going on in the mosques and in the streets and in the universities and in their newspapers and among their intellectuals. Even if they use their secret police, even if they use their enormous repressive capacities, they have to pay some attention to public attention, uh, sorry, to public opinion. And that is exactly what's happening. And to your point on the United States, of course, it becomes much harder to sell the Ukraine war to the global south when, uh, you know, the global south doesn't feel the same way you do about what just happened in Israel. 
Um, one final, well, almost final question is this, uh, you know, when the violence end, and hopefully it will very soon, uh, with, you know, the Palestinian Authority, uh, admittedly so discredited, with Hamas viewed as a terrorist organization, who, you know, if the time comes, do we sit down with? Who who will be at the table on behalf of the Palestinian people? I mean, this is one of the great problems that the Palestinians have to face, that they have a an absolutely unfit leadership on every level. Uh, whether we're talking about a, a Palestinian authority in Ramallah, which has almost no legitimacy with the overwhelming majority of Palestinians, which is not seen as representing them, and which has not had allowed elections to take place since 2006. Or whether we're talking about Hamas, which rules Gaza with an iron hand, which is not enormously popular with the people over whom it ruled um, before this these events took place, before the 6th of October, and which, in my view, has no political vision. Um, we are talking about a, a, a vacuum, a leadership vacuum. And this is the problem that which you, which you just put your finger on. Who will go to the table if there is a table? I don't expect there to be one, but were there to be a possibility of a, a resolution? Who would represent, who represents the Palestinians? I mean, President Biden has been very clear. He's told us that, you know, as far as we're concerned, Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinians. Well, as far as most Palestinians are concerned, the Palestinian Authority doesn't represent the Palestinians. So who does? This is a Palestinian problem, exacerbated by the interference of external actors to the nth degree. Israel has worked to keep the Palestinians separate. The United States has worked to keep the Palestinians separate. Arab and other Middle Eastern countries have each played their clients in ways that keep the Palestinians separate. But the Palestinians have overcome this kind of external intervention in the past, in the 1930s, in the 1960s, in the 1980s. They, they've, they managed to overcome that. Um, it, it will be their problem going forward. And it is, to my way of thinking, one of the great problems, that the, the one of the greatest problems that the Palestinians have. My final question, um, and I know you've been asked this endlessly, but do you fear there's a risk of a broader conflagration and at some point of Iran being involved, dragged in, or, you know, Israel yeah. trying to drag the United States into right. Iran because it can't do it on its own? I, I do fear um, a wider conflagration. I am very afraid of an escalation uh, between Hamas, sorry, between, excuse me, I'm very afraid of an escalation uh, between Israel and Hezbollah. Um, they have, it seems up to this point, I dare not say this, managed to keep the level such that it doesn't rise beyond that. My intuition, I hope I'm right, is that neither Israel nor Hezbollah nor the United States nor Iran desires an escalation beyond the level that it is currently at. However, events outside their control, for example, yet another huge massacre in Gaza, a Israeli ground offensive that goes on for a very long time, killing thousands and thousands more Palestinians, or other events that are out of control of any of the actors or most of the actors could provoke such an escalation. And one thing could lead to another. I mean, the apocalyptic scenario 
is that uh, 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 an Israel-Hezbollah war, which would devastate Lebanon, brings in Syria and Iran. And that might bring in the United States. And then we're in, then we're in a real pickle. That, then then the, world, the world is in trouble. Because Israel is a nuclear-armed power. The United States is a nuclear-armed power. If Iran gets seriously involved in this, I don't think there are necessarily any red lines. And then we really have to worry. However, my intuition, and I hope I'm right, is that these four actors will stay away from that precipice. They may not be able to prevent it because any other anybody could push them into it or any one of the four could act in a way that has unintended or perhaps intended consequences. But barring that, I my intuition is that we might not see that apocalyptic. Inshallah, I hope we won't see that apocalyptic scenario. Professor, I know you have family in the West Bank. I overheard in your conversation with Farid Zakaria. I hope they all stay safe. All your loved ones stay safe. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. Much to reflect on after this conversation with Rashid Khalidi. Thank you for joining the conversation. Goodbye.